Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. Today we're going to begin a series, and as I've studied it and for several months now and come to it, it's one of those, for those of us that have been here together for, for years, um, when we start a new series like this, it's a, it's a journey for everyone, myself included, and um, I'm looking forward to this particular journey. It's, uh, it'll be enti- just a series on dealing with shame and the, how it is the lie of hell and what shame is. Now, when you first mention that, it sounds like you're coming from some popular notion of culture that you're not supposed to feel bad about anything. I believe scripture is very clear that we are supposed to feel guilty. And therein comes a working definition. I'll read two or three definitions from, from people who, um, uh, who study it that are both inside the church and outside the church who study shame. But a fundamental definition, the difference between shame and guilt, is shame has to do with who I am. Guilt has to do with what I've done. And we should feel the weight of guilt when we walk beyond the scope or outside the scope of what God has called us to do in this life because it results in our own wholeness and the wholeness of those around us, we should feel the weight of that. In the weeks to come, we're going to break that down a little more. Let me tell you what's happening in the weeks to come. By the way, um, given the ongoing issues with my back, and many of you asked me about it, so I'll I'll save the the text messages or Facebook, Uh, I have a, a second procedure on Wednesday where they inject some stuff into um, uh, my spine, and hopefully that will help. We're going to do that three times before we look at surgery. So there's that story. And uh, for those of you who haven't been around here, you'll notice at the same time, uh, my wife is on, is on crutches since uh, Thanksgiving. A lot of times when you see bad things like this happen to people, your first thought is, you know, you know, what, what the disciples asked Jesus when they came through the gate and they saw the blind man, they said, who sinned, him or his parents? And I want to let you know that what has befallen on our home, um, when you see, you know, me injured and her walking around on crutches in a wheelchair and we're both there, that is her sin, not mine. And I just want to make that clear. God spoke that to me. And um, so pray for her, please. And um, that there'll be righteousness. For those of you that are here for the first time, you can, oh my goodness, I can't believe he said that. I would also have you note the majority, if not unanimous laughter that's there, because if there were to be an indictment one way or the other, I'm sure that I brought it, not her. But, uh, and no one has to say amen to that. But, uh, but Brenda had surgery on Tuesday and they went in with a scope and did some stuff on her knee that's going to Make her brand new and wonderful. She will soon be leaping tall buildings again in single bounds. I'll be looking forward to that. I have missed uh, for now, what, nearly five months. It is five months, uh, going on six months of, of hearing her pray and, and the wonderful gift that she brings here. And I just want to tell you, you, when she finally does return, you'll notice the distinct difference between the quality of prayer and exhortation, such as the... Um, sort of mundane and, mundane and innocuous word you heard from Hans this morning, which really had nothing and no power to it. So um, the, uh, somebody says, oh my goodness. Uh, that's my, my very poor sense of humor. Was that just not, I don't know about you, but I was over there thinking, man, I just need to praise God, you know, that um, what a great word, you know. If you came and heard that alone, you could leave and say, okay, I got my money's worth. And um, 
but uh, what a great day to be in the house of the Lord. And I was considering shame. I, I'm, I was reminded of this. It's a very poor example where um, <laughs> a young lady was at the funeral of a family member who had aged. And, and of course, at funerals and things, weddings and family reunions, you see people you haven't seen in a while. Where, well, she saw an aged an aunt who she had not seen for 20 years or so. And in the conversation, the aged aunt, who was, had been historically negative to her while she was growing up, she said to her, you know, what a beautiful young woman you have become. And um, so after the, after the funeral was over, the young woman was with her mother, and she says, you know, I, I, just, I just saw Aunt Lily, and it was amazing. It was just so delightful. You know, I hadn't really seen her since I, I was a child. You know, she used to sort of say things about the way everybody looks, myself included. And her mother said, yes. Isn't it, here comes the word shame, the way we use it in culture. She says, isn't it a shame she's just gone totally blind? And that'll come to you in a moment. And uh, we use shame in lots of different ways in, in, you know, you should be ashamed. And see, I'm not wanting to come off on some politically correct soapbox. I'm wanting to start a study of something because I, I believe that it stymies the growth of people. We, we have shame concerning everything from things we've done. Um, and, and, we, and we're going to study how to say, okay, God, let my shame here turn to guilt and let me deal with guilt by what? Confession. And, and, and the first pr- problem with shame, it begins in the Garden of Eden. And we're going to see it, how it's implied in Scripture. There's a bunch of Scripture, so I have to move quickly today. And you need to get your Bibles or your your smartphones or pads or whatever, laptops, whatever you have. And also, the majority of it, if not all of it, will be on the screen. There's one section that sort of came to me. But um, let, let, me, let me just share with you a couple of definitions from, from shame, of shame. By the way, uh, the author, Ph.D., Brene Brown, she has a Ph.D. in qualitative logistics. I had to go and research and look up what qualitative logistics was, and I could probably tell you ten jokes about it's amazing how culture, how we can come up with degrees in everything in the world. And when you look at qualitative logistics, that's one of those where you go, wow, a PhD in that. But uh, nonetheless, uh, quite brilliant. And she, she, she did her PhD work entirely on the issue of shame. Now, she didn't do it from a biblical context, although in the process, when she had aggregated all of her information and when she was going to write her defense, it was there that she had a personal crisis because uh, she was convinced of certain things coming into it. And when she came to the, the point of actually writing the paper and doing it, a personal crisis. And if I understand it correctly, it was at that point that she actually came and, she, as she said, returned to the roots of her faith and, uh, and, and, and became a believer, a follower of Christ once again, having departed from that. But listen, uh, the, in, her, in her book, Daring Greatly, great book to read, Daring Greatly, uh, she defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Now, that's an important statement because two of the most, if not the two most fundamental needs of human existence are love and belonging. Love and belonging. And I love some of the things that she teaches about that. She says, we sacrifice belonging on the altar of trying to fit in. Now, in the weeks ahead, we're going to be talking about that. We, we, and we, we think belonging is the same as fitting in, and it is not. And we're going to talk about that. 
Louis Smees. Now, he, this, this person is, these, these next couple of people, they do right from within the context of, of faith. But shame is a very heavy feeling. It's a feeling that we do not measure up and maybe never will measure up to the sorts of persons we are meant to be. Robin Stockett, another writer from within the faith community. Shame can be understood, therefore, as arising from the external pressure of a group where the use of shame as a social sanction is particularly effective. Shame is closely related to the reception of approval, strikes at the core of who a person is. I could go on to say that when you meet people who have grown up in church, and many of them will leave church, one of the things they'll talk about is they made me feel ashamed. And I think that's because the faith community has gotten confused between the difference of shame and guiltiness. Guilt is one thing. Shame is not. Shame is another. I want to say that again. Guilt is what we do. Shame is born of implying that you are flawed fundamentally. God never does that. You know, my mind is so full. And like I said, in the weeks to come, we're going to skip weeks. I won't go to it next week because for the next couple of weeks, we have a couple of points of celebration that we typically do. And uh, you'll see what they are. You want to be part of it. Of course, two weeks from today is Mother's Day. And that's always a big day of celebrating uh, around here at New Hope, and we're going to do that. But here's something that, again, that I'll, I'll say for the future. But have you ever thought of that disgrace? We're shame, we're disgraced. Now, just as a thought, what did we get through the cross of Jesus Christ? You said it, grace, grace. Did you want to know that Scripture goes on to tell us, especially in the book of the Hebrews, that there is no way that you can undo the force of that blood covenant that God made through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. There is no way, there is no way that grace will be withdrawn. God won't disgrace or ungrace the world. Grace is here for us. And if you're a child of God, there never is a goal, nor is there ever a point when he will disgrace you. I can't wait to get to talk to you about that. Are you not glad that you that you will never be ungraced. Turn to the person next to you and say, you will never be ungraced. We're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. Another uh, uh, Christian writer, uh, Benjamin Shin, he says, while the effect of shame typically leads to, and and watch what he says here, leads to withdrawal and hiding oneself, this can also be accomplished in more than one way. Then he quotes someone that we've already quoted. Let's look at Genesis 2.25. It's the first place that the notion of shame appears in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it's the end of man, man the male, has been created. Now the female has been created. Uh, Ish Adam, it was Adam and Ish Adam, okay, have been created, brought her. And it said, here, this verse says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now, as we go on, this is a passage of Scripture we look at a lot here because it's the foundation of understanding what the life of worship is. Okay, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. There's a brief refresher. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Mm-mm. Lord, help the pastor not to get stuck right here. All right? Genesis chapter 3. They, being Adam and Ish Adam those who we refer to as Adam and Eve, uh, that he would give her that name, Adam would give her that name after this. But they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now we've studied that last year and we will come back to it again. Everybody say the word cool. That is the word ruach. 
Uh, I will find the date. If you want to know more about this, send me an email and say, hey, dude, tell me about the word cool, and I will send you back the link. It was in March of last year, uh, February or March of last year. The word for cool is ruach. It is the identical term, and it is the same word translated in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, as spirit, capital S, as in spirit of God. And those of you may recall that I dug into this, and I called two or three different PhD Hebrew linguists and said, let me just propose this, and I laid out my defense of it, and I said, is there any reason why it can't be rendered? And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at spirit time. And every one of them concurred. And the first one I called just was, went silent on the phone for six or seven seconds. And I thought he was preparing to tell me I'd lost my mind. And he said, oh, my goodness, Tom, how could I have missed that? And then he took off on a bunch of academic mechanical stuff and left me in the high grass. But um, heard the sound of the Lord God. And we're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit is the agent of combating shame in our life, okay? You heard him in the, in the, at spirit time. And the man and his wife hid themselves. Everybody say hide. Man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called the man and said to him three words that he never wanted mankind to hear. Three words that he never wanted mankind to hear and he never wants you to hear. When we hide from him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Everybody say afraid. Afraid. Okay. Because I was naked, so I hid myself. Everybody got that? Everybody say hid again. And he said, who told you that you were naked? We're going to study that in the weeks to come. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave to me from the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Everybody say deceived. Now you wear in that 13th verse, she actually tells you what happened first. We were deceived, then we were afraid, and so we hid. Now through the years here, you have heard our study on worship. In John chapter 4, only place in the Bible where God in the flesh describes worship. All of you listen to me. I know most of you have heard this many times over, but there'll be someone here today who hears this for the first time and you need to hear it, okay? That he says, those who worship, worship in spirit and in truth. We understand the word worship to be beautifully wrapped up in, in an old English bridge term that means to shape the worth. Worth shaping, shaping the worth. Worship is nothing less than that. Where my worth, the essence of who I am and my identity, is wrapped up and defined by him. By him. In my father's house, there's a place for me. I know who I am. In him, I know who I am. Where my worth is found. Now, when spirit and in truth, that's where we play with the concept of spirit time. And the word truth in the, in the New Testament comes from a Greek term that in the simplest of fashions, listen, means to unhide. Now, how many know when Jesus comes and meets this particular woman whose name we don't know, but she also is hiding in her shame. She's hiding and he meets her and he tells her what worship is. And he essentially says, you don't have to hide. Worship is about becoming unhidden. Do you know every moment, however long it was, prior to the last day in Eden, their worth was found in the words of God alone and walking with God. 
their worship was found, their worth was found in the word of God and walking with God alone. Worship was lost, worth was challenged when they listened to another voice. And when they finally say, we were naked, they didn't say, and we were ashamed. But every theologian will agree that that's the intimation. Genesis 2.25 says we were naked and not ashamed. Now we've, we've covered up because we are ashamed. It is my contention that shame enters right there. And listen to me. Shame entered because they listened to the wrong voice. They listened to the wrong voice. Now, what is God's attitude towards shame? I want to fast forward. And Gabe, I didn't send you this text. But if you could run down this verse, Isaiah 61 and I want, I want to pick up on that, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 7. And Gabe, while you're running those down, let me give you the backdrop. If you were to read Luke chapter 3 or Matthew chapter 3, pretty sure both chapters are 3, could be 4. Uh, Jesus is, re, walks into the synagogue after fasting and praying in the wilderness for 40 days. He opens a scroll and he begins to read this passage of Scripture. He only reads the first two couples of, couple of verses. Hear me. And he says, I want you to know this day it has come to pass in your sight. Now, it's that important. Now, let's look at Isaiah 61. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. The favorable year of our Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. The word favorable there is the word jubilee release. Okay, the favorable year of our Lord and the day of vengeance uh, of our God. Let me pick up that. To comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. These three things are so wonderful. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The mantle of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness or fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Beloved, this is arguably my life ministry and chapter. And I'm exercising great restraint not to go into these. But watch this. It says, then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. I can't ever read that verse without telling you what it means. Watch what it seems. Because this was a prophecy that is telling what the Messiah would do when he came and who he would be. He would be this guy. Listen to me. In that one verse alone, rebuilding ancient ruins. The Hebrew term means the days of our fathers, a time not in the mind of those living today. It is also translated in an abstract fashion, vanishing point. He will rebuild the ancient ruins. He will raise up the former devastation. The word former is the same word that we get from beginning. It's Rosh Hashanah, Rosh, the beginning, the essence of something. The former. It will raise up. He will rebuild the ancient ruins, raise up the former devastations. The word devastation there it means the horror or shock incurred by one as they observe the judgment of God. Judgment of God only comes because of something we do. Well, I'll come back to that. He says, and I'll repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. The word repair there is renew to make new again. The word ruined, listen, means a dry, hot, desolate place incapable of supporting life, growth, or vegetation. Now back up for a minute. 
You see, because every one of us have things that happen in the days of our father. They happened in a day before we could make choices. They happened on us. They happened to us. Those things happen. For conscious recollection, a day not in the mind, I think time not in the mind of those living today. Consciously, we don't even think about it up here. But back here, it's a mechanism that's working on us. For every intent and purpose, it's vanished from our recollection, but it's still back there working. Something from the days of our father. And then it says former devastation. The choices that we made, if I were to ask everyone here, what's the one thing? What's the two things? The three things? The point you made that moment where the judgment, where you found yourself over and against God and God says, great, I'm going to let you walk in your thing. And it came down on you. We can all name it. But then it says this, I will make new again, the dry, hot, desolate places incapable of supporting life, growth, or vegetation. Look at me. There's not a person that I come across that at some point they don't point to the things that happened in the days of their father that they had no choice over. They had no power over. It happened to them. They can point to the choices that they made where devastation befell them. They can point to it back along the timeline and said it happened right there. I made the choice. I knew it was wrong. And what it resulted in is this place in my life that I want you to think of your yard. We live on 10 acres. I want you to think of your yard if it's a quarter acre lot or one acre. That you go out there and you put up a fence and you put a sign on it. Nothing can grow here. The soil is dead. It cannot produce anything. It will not grow anything. God says, I want you to know that I understand that I'm the redeemer who comes. And for every one of those moments where it's come, where you realize there were things done to you and things done by you and through you, where you put up a sign and say, I can't forgive there. There's going to be love there. It can't grow there. Nothing can grow there. God said, I will come to that dry, hot, desolate place, incapable of supporting life, growth, or vegetation, and I will make it a veritable garden of God. In fact, the last verse of this redemptive chapter, he said, I will cause praise and righteousness to spring forth as I cause a garden with the sown things, with the things sown in it to burst forth. I will cause it to bear fruit again. Here is the promise of God through his Messiah, Jesus Christ. I don't care what's happened to you. I don't care what poor choices you made. I don't care where the devil joined you and handing you the sign and giving you the marker or the paintbrush that you put up there and said, ain't nothing can grow here again. Not's going to happen. Let's just forget it. Let's just mark it off. Let's just learn to build a road around it because nothing can grow here. It is that plot of land in your soul, heart, and life to which God approaches and says, I'm going to tear the sign down. I'm going to tear the fence down. I'm going to make this a garden of God because can't doesn't exist within redemption. Hallelujah. Now I'll sit back down again. Had to stand up for that. Amen. Hallelujah. Boy, that was good. I needed to hear that. Even if I did say it myself. So we know the Messiah's attitude. Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two. I'm doing pretty good. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Wait a minute. I didn't finish where I was going a minute ago. Got so excited about what I was saying. Watch what happens. Go back, Gabe. Sorry. He, he finishes and he says, I'll rebuild the ancient ruins, raise up the former devastations, repair the desolations, the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. And he says, uh, 
He says, strangers will guard and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. The, Greek, the Hebrew there is actually sons of foreigners and sons of your Bible. Did you know that actually happened? That actually happened in their history. They came back, and if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you're going to find out that God used the people who captured them two generations before to actually finance and pay for the rebuilding of the temple. Listen to me. Do you know it is God's... Look, look, look here, please. That it is God's goal to take those failures and those broken places in your life and say, I will use those and I will leap off the back of those and use them to promote my purpose. You know, I don't know what Bible term for that is. Listen, listen to the preacher. That's testimony. Testimony is the point where you walk straight up to the thing that you said will define me. The failure, the brokenness, the thing done to you, the thing done by you is forever going to define who I am and leave me in shame. And God says, no. No. See, now counselors of this world, so just try and forget it. Just try and put it behind you. Jesus said, no, the gates of hell will not prevail. Listen, why am I quoting Matthew 16? It's because that comes forward from Abraham where he says, you will possess the gates of your enemy. The Bible doesn't say, see, the word the gates of the enemy had to do with strategies, counsel, and referendum. And forgive me for not going into that. I don't want to confuse anybody. But Jesus would use that very language in Matthew 16 when he would talk about the church. And please accept my word for it. He said, I want you to know that hell has strategies, councils, and referendum that essentially started in the garden. And that's to uproot my opinion of you and for you to accept their opinion of you. And he says, I want you to know something. I don't want you to forget your mistakes or put them behind you. I want you to possess the gates of your enemy. You take possession of that. It becomes your testimony. You don't just forget get it, you own it. You own it. You look at it in its faith and a colloquial phrase, probably 10 or 20 years old. That's got to be older than that because when I was younger, uh, we used to use it in trash talking on the basketball court. I owned you, man. It was usually said to me and not by me, but I owned you, man. I just, anybody hear that? Anybody want to step up to those things where that sign's been posted and you look at it and say, I own you and you want to know why? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, when something tries to own you, just remind them that you've been bought with a price. You are bought with a price paid for with blood, and I own you. And because I own you, we're going to own that. There's no voice that's going to rise above mine. Some of you here today need to look shame in the face and those points of brokenness and say, I own you. I own you. You say, well, that's arrogant. No, it's not. Because it's been purchased and paid for. Everything in your life has been bought and owned. Listen, if the cross bought you and owned you, guess what? It owns everything in your life that ever happened. And God has the final word on that. Now, you will be called priests and minister, priests of the Lord. You'll be spoken of as ministers of our God. You'll eat the wealth of the nations. And in their riches you will boast. And here's the verse I was headed towards. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. Instead of your humiliation, you will shout for joy over their portion. They will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. I just want to tell you that what God's attitude is about it, when you say, God, you don't know how bad it's been. God says, I'm going to take that thing and make it twice as good as you can remember. God says, I'm going to double back to you. Listen, this isn't just preaching. It's in the Bible, and it is true. Your individual emotional health is going to be measured to the extent 
by which you believe his word above the echoes of your failure and your past. That being said, let me just leap ahead real quickly. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, I want to take that apart in the weeks to come. Because our shame has to do with social pressure. And I love the way he slides this in here. He says, you got a whole bunch of people that are witnessing you. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Here comes the word. Despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the triune God. What was the remedy for Genesis chapter 3, the last day in Eden? He says, I have an agenda for it. And I'm aware, strictly saying, that Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, said the shame of the cross. And of course, it was the shame of the cross. But it's not just the shame of the cross. It's shame in general. Jesus took up shame right there. And said, there's a new word that's going to be final after I leave the cross. There's going to be a final statement, a final resolution. I want to say something to you. I just wrote down before I came out here while I was listening to the worship. Listen to me. Somebody needs to write this down. Everybody knows what redemption is to bring out the full value of thing. We study that a lot. It's in our basic teaching around here. By the way, I encourage you, if you haven't been through next steps, go through next steps. You're going to learn some of the, our, our key words that are big to our, our life of faith. Redeem means to bring the full value of the thing out. I'm just going to say this much. Many of you will remember there are mornings at times that I bring in a coupon from Kroger or Food City and tell you that was worth $1.99, but you had to take it to Kroger or Food City respectively in order to get the inherent value that was sewn into that due to what was stamped on it. See, God's word says, listen to me, listen, says that you, you and I, were created in his image. My worth and value was stamped on my soul, but there's only one place we can bring it to be redeemed and for that full value to be brought out, and that is back to the presence of the king. There's only place where the full value of who and what you are can be brought to the surface. You see, the cross was that through which God could redeem all of humanity, redeem you and me. But our greatest acts of redemption will always be on the other side of shame. Our greatest acts of redemption will always be on the other side of shame. My greatest place of understanding redemption will be as I walk through crucifying that shame. If I were to ask you here, no one would pull out a piece of paper because none of us want to admit there's anything we're ashamed of. But if I were to ask you to pull out a piece of paper and write down, just write down the one thing that you're most ashamed of. I can guarantee you that for 99% of the people here, that still, to some degree, informs you about who you are. And God would crush that. That was crushed on the cross. You see, what happened in the garden was they listened to the wrong opinion about who they were. And the cross was the place where God crushed that and the resurrection we just celebrated last week. He said he made a show of them openly when he conquered that. Our greatest act of redemption will always be just on the other side of shame. I have some more stuff I need to tell you. But as I've grown and aged... I have developed the sense to identify points at which 
God seems to be focusing a particular expression of grace. And I just had a sense of that, not for myself, but for people here. That God wants to tear down the sign that you've posted in the garden of your soul. Some matter of shame. Some matter of shame. In the weeks to come, we're going to look at the antithesis of these words, especially in the New Testament. Shame is contrasted by honor. Shame is contrasted, watch this, by approval. I've told this story to you guys several times. My wife will tell you there's not much that I don't tell. Uh, uh, Dan, I don't know where you are, but come up here so I can figure out what it is. Oh, there you are, son. The... um, Um, it was one morning um, in my office about five years ago and the way that I preached changed from that point forward Um, I was doing a series on the father's love and how we can only love because he first loved scripture says it so it's not any great revelation but we somehow get that messed up John, the gospel writer, and John, the revelator, writes about this uniquely and almost exclusively. He seemed to get it, and it's tied into some things we'll look at. Shame. We hide. As I came for this over several weeks, the glaring thing that I came back to me again and again and again and again is that what I know, what I know this much, shame is why and where we hide. It's why, and we're going to unpack that. That's going to be our focus in the weeks ahead. It's why and where we hide. You know, as I go back through the narrative of Scripture, and I read about the woman at the well who went there in the middle of the day. She hid in her shame, had five husbands, and number six wasn't even her husband. The woman with the issue of blood, we don't know her name either. But commentators, if you dare to dig into it, believe that it was a vaginal bleeding that made her unclean and she was ashamed. There's a reason why she didn't even say it out loud because if she had said, I need to be healed of bleeding and hemorrhaging that I've had all these years, they would have immediately grabbed her and thrown her out. We ask, why didn't she just say, Lord, can you help me? Because she knew if she said it out loud and those words didn't hit his ear first, if someone heard it before he heard it, she would be drug away, and she knew that. And in her shame, all she did was fall forward through the crowd, believing if I can just touch him. I believe during the musical, when I wrote the song, I wish you could have been around through the years writing these songs. They're always a cry fest. The second verse is just another need in a faceless crowd, hoping for just one touch somehow to be made whole. One last hope and one last try the courage to reach out one more time and be made whole without even the strength to call out his name. She just closed her eyes and reached out anyway. And suddenly she touched the Lord. You know, our our fear is that our shame, if we speak it out loud, someone's going to hear it before he does. That hit me this morning. Woo! She couldn't say it out loud because if someone hears it before he hears it, I'm going to be pushed out. You know, hmm, 
I want to be part of a faith community. I've said this. But when people walk in, it's spirit time. In the weeks to come, we're going to read about the provision God made. We're going to read Romans 5 because all mankind had to do in the garden was meet God and say it out loud. But they didn't. They didn't. And we're going to look at that. I want to be part of a place where it's safe to say it out loud. I want to be part of that place. We can find somebody. I don't mean you have to stand in front of the church and broadcast it. The Bible doesn't even tell us to do that. Matter of fact, about our deepest points of violation, it says go to, it's just sort of given to us conversely, but you go to one, or then two or three come. But it's not broadcast to the whole world, but you find the one. My prayer is that Father New Hope would become a place where we can find somebody to open our heart and we're not scared that if they hear it first, They'll push us away. But it's a place where I can say it to somebody and they hear it first. They're going to help me get it to your ears. I want want to be part of a place like that. Today I want to pray with you because there are some people, and and this one is sort of so so touchy. I I want to provide the opportunity to pray with you one-on-one, but... These kind of things are so sacred and so sensitive. You know, bow your head, close your eyes, and I'll come down front. That's not necessary. And neither do I have any desire (laughs) to expose you or for the number of people to respond to provide the efficacy or viability of the sermon you've just heard. I grew up. I grew up in a church like that. We always had an altar call every Sunday. And it was a litmus test of the, of the viability of, of the preacher's sermon. Because the more people you got down front, that meant the better the sermon was. I always wondered, what happens when you get everybody down front? You know, where do you go from there? Huh? So that's not what this is about. Um, let's see, what do we do? You don't want to stand up? See, that's a relief for many here. Because you know when I have you stand up, you're that much closer to getting to leave. So... <clears throat> Would you keep your eyes open while I pray? Then I'm going to have you close your eyes if you'd like. See? You know this song? My failure had spoken. Judgment complete. Six. What I had done is what I would be. Yesterday's voices saying I am to blame. The suddenly silence as mercy calls my name. Your judgment won't triumph at the sound of his voice, reversing the final decree. For hear mercy speaks. When mercy speaks, nothing else can. When mercy speaks, I know who I am. There 
Where grace abounds and mercy is found, there I will wait. Right here at your feet, for mercy to speak. Father, I pray for those of us here that we've posted a sign there out of our own brokenness and pain, out of listening to the wrong voices. It could be the days of our Father. It could be the choices we made. But, but in our own mind and the own economy of our soul, we've posted a sign that says nothing can grow there. It can't grow there. Since those days, Lord, we've come to know you as our Savior. But the sign remains in place. Since then, we've sung songs of praise, but the sign remains in place. (laughs) Since then, we've sought you on our face, but the sign remains in place. And today, Lord, you have stopped by here and manifest a very special grace for the one or the two that you want to take by the hand and say, let's walk over here. Let's walk right there. Let's walk right to that place. Now, if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm not going to ask you to leave where you're standing. This is a sacred moment. It's a, it's a very close moment. Intimate moment. And you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm going to ask you to risk it because the Bible tells us to agree together and you're going to agree together with me. And here's the pledge I want to make to you that I will guarantee you in a moment as you just lift your hand and your head that no one's ears will hear it except God's from my lips. I want to tell you that you're in a safe place where you do not have to worry about this morning if you're to lift your head and your hand and say, yeah, I, I got one of those signs I need torn down. It's been there long enough. I need it torn down. You don't have to worry about the wrong person hearing it or going the wrong place. It's going straight to his ears. He's here for you and with you this morning. Now, if you're here this morning, I'm the only one looking around right now. I don't want to miss anybody. If you just lift your hand in your head, let me make eye contact with you. I need to do that. Okay, there's seven. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.